Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Any Stupid Questions. Political podcasts that ask stupid questions about big issues. Questions like, I still don't understand how Donald Trump happened. Am I alone? Those sorts of questions. Today we'll be talking economics with Jonathan Porters, Professor of Economics at King's College London. Plus comedians joining me are Tom Noonan and Gronya Maguire. <laughs> so if I can start, Jonathan, with the question, why is everybody so obsessed with the UK being a strong economy, why can't we just be a nice country like Norway or something? <laughs> well, Norway is considerably richer than the UK. Oh, is it? In okay. fact, it's considerably richer than almost anywhere. Yeah. Norway has a pretty well-organised economy and society in general, but they also happen to be sitting, or their territorial waters are sitting over large quantities of oil and gas so although Norway does, in my view, and most economists' view, actually run its economy pretty well, yeah. it also has had a lot of good luck. So, uh, oh, is that what it so is? Because they never talk about that helps. when you talk to Norwegians. But, um, but you take my point that we are really obsessed with having this strong economy in the UK, as they are in America and you know, Germany. But is that the most important thing for a well-functioning society? Well, strong is subjective, but does prosperity matter? Does whether you manage your economy well matter? Yes, absolutely those things matter. If you look back at what the UK was in the early 19th century, say, before we had the Industrial Revolution, before we had the sort of economic growth we've had over the last 200 years, well, you know, and the fact was it was pretty bloody miserable for the vast majority of the population most of the time. Yeah. And conditions are still bad in lots of countries which don't have such strong economies. But things are getting better, and that is primarily down to economic growth. So, you know, extreme poverty is far lower than it was 20 years ago. Infant mortality is down to, I think, about a third of what it was 30 years ago. Humanity overall is much healthier, people live longer, people have access to food, water and all the rest of it in ways which they didn't 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that's mostly down to economic growth in one form or another. Not entirely, lots of other things going on at the same time. Hmm. But what happens in the economy really matters. Gronja, Tom? 
I'd like to open the floor up to you. Um, so I have a question. I get really confused when I think about, you know, like a new product comes out and then everybody wants to buy it. And then it's like, brilliant. Now there's so much more money in the country because people are buying this product. Is it not that there's just a certain amount of prosperity in the world forever, but just the only thing that changes is some people have more of it and some people have less of it? No, absolutely not. Like, Where does the extra money come from? That gets things the wrong way around. The products come first, not the money, right? And by products, I mean things in a general sense. You know, if somebody invents a technology that enables a farmer to grow twice as much food with the same amount of effort on the same amount of land, that makes the world as a whole richer. Now, the benefits of that increased prosperity distributed, how much of it goes to the farmer, how much of it goes to the rest of the world, that's what economics is about, how the market mechanism or the state or whatever shares out that prosperity. But if you invent something that generates more wealth or more output, then the world as a whole becomes more prosperous. Uh, I use the sort of most primitive example of farming, but this is true of almost all sorts of technological progress. You know, the fact that computer chips operate far, far faster than they did 30 years ago. That means you can produce more, one way or another, quicker with less people, and that makes us a more prosperous society. But there's not a fixed amount of prosperity to go around. That has really cheered me up. Yeah, um, I have a question. I follow Donald Trump on Twitter because I hate myself. And he constantly tweets about how the stock market is booming. But the stock market isn't the economy, is it? What relation is it? (laughs) What relation does the stock market have to the economy? The stock market certainly isn't the economy at all. And the fact the stock market is booming may or may not be a good thing. It depends. The stock market is a very important innovation in capitalism, right? Uh, um, Why do we have stock markets? And the answer is because if you only have a system where the person who runs the company owns the company, owns all of the company, that sort of limits how big companies can grow. And one of the big innovations that made modern capitalism possible was this idea that you could separate ownership from control by allowing people to sell shares in their firms. So the stock market is a way of letting firms grow by allowing money to be channeled into them, which in turn means that the people who originally owned and started the firm give away control, because now ultimately the shareholders control the firm. So it's a very important innovation in capitalism. But the fact that it's doing well, that's up on down on any particular day, or even week or month, doesn't tell you very much about how the economy is doing. It doesn't tell you much about whether on the things that matter to people, whether wages are going up and down, whether unemployment is going up and down, whether firms are actually growing and expanding, making more profits. There is some loose relationship, but stock markets actually go up and down for lots of other reasons as well. And of course, the direct beneficiaries of stocks going up and down are the people who own shares in particular companies. And that's not the majority of the population necessarily. And it doesn't tell you necessarily anything about whether those firms are actually delivering the products that people want to buy. So I think what you're saying, Tom, is uh, Donald Trump chat shit. (laughs) You know what blows my mind? So they developed this new technology that you can buy stocks really, really quick so that you make like millions of pounds like in an afternoon just from buying, buying, selling, buying, 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 selling. Like, how is that real money? Because it's... Where is that? It's fake money, surely. Where has that money come from? If money is somehow connected to something real, like, it surely is just made up money. All money is made up in some mm. sense. And what's absolutely true is that that sort of short-term buying yeah. and selling in itself doesn't generate any 
new economic activity. It doesn't generate any new products. It doesn't generate any new things. So mm -hmm. it isn't producing anything. And if any of if you or anybody here thinks that you can actually go and make millions of pounds by doing this, buying and selling on your computer, well, by all means, go and try it and good luck to you. But the chances are that you won't. Chances are that you'll lose money or at best break even. Because ultimately, it's a zero-sum game. The stock, the intrinsic value of the stock today is going to be pretty much the intrinsic value of the stock tomorrow. The intrinsic value of the stock is determined by how much profits the company out there in the real world makes and can pay to its shareholders. So over a few years, that'll just even itself out. The stock will be worth whatever it's worth, depending on how well the company is run and how well it does in the market. The stock can be bought and sold a million times in between, but if the value at the end is still the value at the beginning, then for every winner, there's a loser. So if people are out there genuinely making thousands of pounds trading from their bedrooms, then equally there are people out there who are losing thousands of pounds trading from their bedrooms. It all evens out, right? So there isn't this sort of magic money tree just from trading the stock market. Our country, uh, and I don't want to sound gauche here, I mean, how great is everything going to be after Brexit? Like, <laughs> uh, those on a scale of one to ten of absolutely amazing, how good is it going to be economically? I think the, you know, the, the, there are so many. Yeah, okay. um, uh, the first thing I'd say is that, look, in the short term, there, you know, we have no idea what sort of Brexit we're going to get. And that's a political question, not an economic question. So if we have a no-deal Brexit where we simply crash out, mm. then my judgment is that it, that's going to be pretty bloody awful, for, certainly for a while. But that's not really a judgment about economics. That's a judgment you know, in my other, my other hat as a sort of Brexit expert. But you're getting Anna and my friend and colleague on next week. You'll talk about the details of Brexit. But leaving that aside... Let's assume that doesn't happen. We get some sort of reasonably smooth, agreed Brexit. What will the consequences be? Well, economists differ about this, but there's a pretty strong consensus that it will be bad. There's a disagreement <laughs> about how bad. Mm. And my personal view is that, you know, anybody who tells you that Brexit will cost, you know, as George Osborne said, it'll cost £4,200 per household. This is complete nonsense. It's nonsense for two reasons. First of all, that we don't know what sort of Brexit we could, we're going to have, and a lot will depend, and a lot will depend on other things. And second, that all economic forecasts that give you precise numbers like that are always wrong. You can't put much, much weight on them. But there is a general consensus that the result of Brexit will be to significantly increase trade barriers between the UK and the rest of Europe, and that even if we do relatively well on increasing our trade with the rest of the world, in the short to medium term, that's not going to make up for it. And that will make us poorer because trade makes us richer. How much poorer? As I said, anyone who gives you a firm number, I wouldn't trust them. And I think there's a legitimate range of views between saying it'll be really pretty bad, very bad, through to it'll be bad, but not, <laughs> not, not so that you will really notice it that much. And to, I mean, you can put numbers on this. The sort of numbers that people talk about to the extent it's helpful, you know, it could be 1% to 2% worse off in 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's not great, but it's not the end of the world, and you'll hardly notice it when other things go on. Then other 
economists will say, well, no, it could be 10% after 15 years. It's not, again, it's not the end of the world. We won't be a poor country, but we'll notice that our living standards are slipping quite noticeably relative to the rest of Europe, and it's certainly a pretty bad thing. And I'm sort of in the middle on this. My view is the directive Brexit will be bad, not a disaster, not the end of the world. Equally, we'll probably notice that things aren't as good as they should be. I don't know what bad means. Does bad mean queuing for a loaf of bread, mass unemployment, people like homelessness increasing, the NHS crumbling, or does bad mean my house is worth £50,000 less than what I paid for it? I don't know what bad means. A bad Brexit in the short term means probably the the sort of things that you might expect in a bad scenario would be well certainly house prices falling and probably not a bad thing but yes unemployment rising probably worse than that inflation rising without wages rising so everything costs more everything costing more and us not getting paid anymore so everybody just feeling somewhat poorer but that's what bad means yes it means less money effectively less money people and people is being less able to afford things. Maybe if worst comes to worst for individuals, people losing their jobs. I really hoped it meant like the street slang version of bad, where it <laughs> actually means good. We're no. definitely not going back to three channels. That's all I wanted to know. Is there a possibility that Brexit, right? I'm saying this as an outsider, hmm. that Brexit could be like, you know, in Jane Eyre, so Mr. Rochester is an arsehole and he thinks hmm. he's too good for Jane Eyre. And then he's humbled. He goes blind and then he's like, oh, actually, I'm really grateful. I see you as an equal. (laughs) So do you think Brexit could be the humbling that Britain needs, goes away, sits by a lake (laughs) with like a rug over their knees and then is like, oh, fuck, maybe we were the (laughs) 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 arseholes. Has like an honest discussion about the implications of the empire. Goes, oh, you know what, maybe we should. and And rejoins the EU, but they're just so like down to earth and chilled (laughs) (laughs) like maybe this could be like the reset that Britain is just like a bit more relaxed and more like oh hey France Um, (laughs) I think that's pretty unlikely (laughs) Um, I mean I think one of the positive things this is the sort of thing I say to cheer myself up anyway (laughs) about particularly the last six months or so and in particular this phase of the negotiation that we're entering into on Brexit is that During the campaign, the referendum campaign itself, you had the Leave campaign effectively saying, and Boris Johnson's famous phrase, we can have our cake and eat it. Um, And, you know, this is precisely what an economist, you know, if if economics is about anything, we economists tend to say, what's economics about? We don't say it's about money or the stock market or things. We say it's about the allocation of scarce resources. It's about trade-offs and opportunity costs and not being able to have everything you want and deciding which of the things that you want you want and how to prioritize them. So, of course, the Leave campaign and Boris Johnson was sort of the epitome of the opposite of that, this idea that outside the EU we could be a great global trading nation at the same time as re-erecting trade barriers that we've spent last 40 years dismantling this idea that we could completely control who comes into our country and who chooses to come into our country again at the same time as being a liberal open economy that somehow got the brightest and the best Mm -hmm. all of these sort of vaguely contradictory things and I think what the last six months of of negotiations is finally being to show is actually life ain't like that Mm -hmm. there are trade-offs if we want a good trade deal with the U.S. then we'll have to start 
shipping in chlorinated chicken and hormone-treated beef and all sorts of other things and accept the fact, you know, if we want a trade deal with China, we're going to have to accept the fact that actually the Chinese are a far more powerful economy who need a deal far less than we do and therefore any deal will be on their terms. Equally, if we want to keep membership of various European organizations, we're going to have to accept the fact that they'll write the rules and we'll simply have to obey them. That Greek economist, Yanni Yiannopoulos, am I pronouncing that right? Leather jacket dude. Yeah, the yeah. jacket dude. Is that, am I pronouncing his name right? No, oh. not, 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 not because your Greek is wrong, but just because you've completely got it, the name wrong. <laughs> Varoufakis. That's the one. All right, you saw Ooh, the name. Sound right. the same, don't they, Gronya? <laughs> Yanni Yiannopoulos sounds more like a singer. Greek or Acropolis. <laughs> do you, like amongst like proper economists, right? Proper economists. Do you like him or think he's a bit of a knob? <laughs> <laughs> like just between us girls. <laughs> <laughs> the latter, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's all all that. Uh, all jackets and no policies, isn't it? Well, look, I mean, he was a well-respected as an economist in academia, but he became a finance minister, and what he was doing was much more about politics, or at least as much about politics as economics, and he was pretty bad at it. He made a huge mistake of thinking that his negotiating position with the European Union was much stronger than it was, and trying to essentially bluff while all his cards were open on the table and it got called and it ended up being very bad both for him personally and for Greece and there may be a moral in all of this for (laughs) some of our cabinet frankly Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds At Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does They charge you a lot we charge you a little So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. a question about the national debt who do we owe this money to ourselves mostly foreigners to some extent but ourselves mostly so how does that even why are we so obsessed with the national debt (laughs) if we owe it to ourselves well what do i mean when i say that we owe it to ourselves when the government wants to go and borrow money it goes out and borrows money 
in the markets by selling something called gilt-edged securities, or basically bonds. Who does it sell them to? It sells them mostly to banks, but the banks sometimes keep on owning themselves, but sometimes, mostly, they sell it on to other organizations, often pension funds. So pension funds own a large share of the national debt. But, for example, if you've ever put money in national savings, mm-hmm. that's part of the national debt too. If you've ever, or any of your family, ever bought a premium bond, that actually counts as the national debt too, right? So the ownership of the national debt is divided up between the rest of the economy. And to some extent, some foreigners also own a share of our national debt. Why does it matter? Well, it does, I mean, you know, it is wrong to say, oh, the country is in debt by X, because actually, to the extent that we owe it to ourselves, that's a, that is a stupid way of putting it. We're debtors as taxpayers and citizens, but we're also creditors as people who own pensions or whatever. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to find money to pay it at some point, and that money has to come from taxes. What the national debt is, is a liability of the, that we have as taxpayers that sooner or later we have to pay in some way. But the other crucial thing to say is that because the country as a whole lives forever, Mm-hmm. Um, and taxpayer, you know, although individual taxpayers die, they're replaced by new taxpayers, doesn't actually have to be, ever be paid off in any meaningful sense. It's like a, having a mortgage that goes on forever. Yes, you have to pay the interest, and yes, you can't just keep on putting up the mortgage indefinitely relative to your income, but equally, when someone says, we have a trillion and a half pounds of national debt, well, that's true. We do have a trillion and a half pounds of national debt, but it's also true that relative to our income as a country, our national debt is only about a third of the size that it was after World War II. So in that sense, we actually, our national debt is much lower than it used to be. We survived the entire 19th century. We built an entire empire mm. at a time when our national debt was actually considerably higher than it is now. You know, and it is a lot. Yeah. It's not anything to but you're not worried. I'm not worried about it, no. I mean, it's not something that you just ignore. Because you couldn't, you you wouldn't want to just keep on doubling it every year or let it get out of control. But it's not a crisis, it's something you manage. So is the austerity program, is that that an ideological thing or a practical thing then? Because it sounds, from what you say, it's more an ideological way of shrinking what um, the government pays out to people. Well, there are, I mean, there are a whole different set of things that people mean by austerity, and there are a whole different set of justifications that people use for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are a whole different set of considerations, short and long term. So, um, so there are some things which are simply not true. So when uh, people said in 2008, 9, 10, oh, you know, the UK is going to be like Greece, we're going to go bust, or we're not, you know, there's going to be a run on the pound, no one's going to want our buyer debt, um, the, you know, there's going to be a crash. That was nonsense. It wasn't true at the time. It's not true now. It was partly ignorance by people who simply didn't understand the basic economics and partly a deliberate lie by people who did understand to scare us into cutting back. So I have no patience for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second point was it was clearly true that at that time we were running a very, very large deficit. Yeah of up to one-tenth of our national income, not quite that much, but almost a tenth of our national income every year. And that wouldn't have been, you couldn't have carried on doing that forever because then our debt wouldn't have just kept on going up. 
but it would have exploded. And yeah. at some point, that would have become unsustainable. We'd have had to do something about it. So it was true that that couldn't have gone on forever. And there was then, I think, a legitimate difference of opinion between people like me who said, this can't go on forever, but we can, we can carry on more or less as we are now for a, a while. And indeed, given the state of the economy, it would be more sensible to do that. Cutting back too quickly is a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, it will be bad for the economy in the long run. We'll actually be worse off if we cut back too quickly. We will have to do something about this at some point, but we don't have to do anything about it yet, which was the line I and many other economists took versus the people who said, no, we need to cut back quickly for various reasons, in my view, none of which really added up, but, you know, we're not completely crazy. And I think they did genuinely. So there's a different opinion about that. Yeah. So that was a legitimate debate. Then there's a third set of arguments, which is about, well, given that you have to cut the deficit, either in the short term or the long term, how should you do it? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you didn't have to cut the deficit by reducing spending, you would also cut the deficit by putting up taxes. So another set of arguments, much more, in some ways, these are much more political, ideological arguments. And there's no right answer, it depends what your politics are, of saying, well, the right way to bring the deficit under control is to cut spending, versus people who said, well, no, the right way to bring the deficit under control is to put up taxes. And that's a, that's a separate set of arguments. It depends very much what your politics are and what you think the priorities of the country ought to be. As, uh, you know, as we know, the definition of austerity is having a go at working class people for buying scratch cards. And <laughs> I wondered, has austerity seems to be something where basically, well, very basically, maybe even contradict me on this, that it's certainly sort of the lower working classes are told to sort of tighten their belts in, in that respect. I wondered, has austerity ever worked the other way, where sort of the, the upper echelons of society have been told to tighten their belts in a way that basically hasn't ended with you know, uh, French aristocracy being beheaded. That kind of, does austerity ever work in the sense that like, well, we need to now enter a period of austerity and that means, you know, higher taxes for the super wealthy and things. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, if by austerity, what you mean is that, uh, you know, you're reducing the deficit. As I say, you have choices. You can do it by cutting spending or you can do it by raising taxes. I mean, to some extent, of course, in the initial phase of austerity, the government did increase taxes on the rich to some extent, the Gordon Brown Alistair Darling 50p tax rate, mm -hmm. uh, which was partially, but only partially subsequently reversed by the Conservatives. But if you look back at when Canada cut its deficit under a liberal, meaning sort of social democratic centre, centre-left government not that long ago, cut its deficit quite successfully in a reasonably balanced way, I think, certainly without imposing disproportionate burdens on on poor people. Has trickle-down economics ever worked? Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by trickle-down economics, but uh, simply cutting taxes on the rich and assuming that would automatically mean that everybody benefited doesn't really work, at least not in modern advanced economies. On the other hand, under, again, the Blair-Brown government, which did more or less operate a relatively market-oriented liberal approach. You know, Peter Mandelson famously said, you know, I don't care if people get filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, under that government, child poverty was reduced by a third and was coming down quite significantly. The amount of money that went to relatively low-income families through tax credit and so on was hugely increased. The amount of money spent on the National Health Service in education was hugely increased, largely because 
people at the upper and middle and upper ends earned more and they paid their taxes and those taxes were recycled into public spending. So if you call that trickle-down economics, that model of a, a largely market economy under which market incentives operate and people are allowed to make lots of money, but you use the tax and benefit system and public spending to redistribute that. Well, yes, that does work. It probably works even better in Scandinavian countries as well. Remember, you know, Sweden and Norway and Denmark and places which have among the highest of standards of living that have ever been seen in the in the world, you know, these are market economies, these are capitalist economies. They have very also have very well developed welfare states. So it sort of depends what you mean by trickle down. If we got rid of all of the ethically bad guys, how bad would our economy be then? Um, Do we rely on like evil trading and crime to help our economy, or is that not a thing that happens? Um, I think the answer is no, we don't rely on evil trading or bad guys for the economy <laughs> on the whole. But equally, the idea that you can get rid of all the evil guys or the bad guys mm-hmm. is, you know, that's not the way the world works, right? Yeah. The way you design a system of regulation and enforcement and all the rest of it for anything is not so that you get zero crime or zero bad behavior because that's a police state or a totalitarian state which is not very good economically or socially or the sort of state we all want to live in. So you have to accept that, of course, there are going to be bad guys. You know, there are going to be people who stock market, you'll have insider trading. In business, you'll have people who sell dodgy goods. You know, that happens. You need a system which punishes that sort of behavior but not doesn't try to stop it entirely. If we got rid of the UK arms trade, how detrimental would that be to the British economy? My view is probably not very. Mm-hmm. You know, it would there would be some costs. We have some technology there. We have some investment there. We have lots of skilled workers there. We export quite a lot of arms. So we would have to accept that we would lose some of the economic benefits we get by selling arms. The market, either the government or the market, would have to find a way of retraining people or redirecting their efforts into other things. But it wouldn't be the end of the world. We'd just be slightly poorer than we otherwise would have been. Brexit slightly poorer, or <laughs> um, what would be worse think, for the economy? I think probably less than Brexit slightly poorer, actually, because I think ultimately, you know, the the impact of not selling arms would be what we tend to call in economics adjustment costs, right? Because mm-hmm. you've got some sort of fixed costs that you we've made some investments in this sector. And some of those would you know, some of those are in machinery, some of those are in people who've been trained doing things. And you have to either the market has to reallocate those investments and that can be tough. And you know, uh, we, you see that, for example, in the coal mining industry, right? This is an industry which became completely uncompetitive. The adjustment costs, unfortunately, are still there in, in some towns and, and communities that are still blighted by the impact of closing that. But modern economies on the whole actually adjust very well, right? So you often see headlines about 10,000 people losing their jobs or whatever in some, you know, somebody's announced some layoffs, 1,000 people are going to lose their jobs. You know, actually, 10,000 people lose their jobs in Britain every day, every single day. Every single working day, 10,000 people lose their jobs. And 10,000 people find a job as well. 
yeah. the amount of turnover in a modern capitalist economy is very, very high. So, you know, would there be some costs? Yes. Would they be that high? My personal view is they probably wouldn't because we'd probably adjust. Most of the people that work in these sectors are probably, this sounds a bit callous, but yeah, they'd probably, ma- they'd manage. But the jobs of- in sex robot work. <laughs> no? That's, that's the new technology, right? Yes. You move from arms yeah. into sex robots. Yes, absolutely. What, yeah. that's, think- not, that's not at all crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, some, of, some of those technologies probably are interchangeable. That's right. And yes, people would get yeah. jobs in that sort of new new sector. But think of all the communities, like all the towns that built up around arms trading. <laughs> like all those brass bands. <laughs> <laughs> All those community centres. Tom, have you got something you wanted to ask? Yeah, okay, this is a selfish one. Hypothetically, if I had £100... Whoa. Um, Keep dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> what should I do with that £100 to see the fastest and best return or, or get more money? What, what would be your advice for what, where, to, where to stick my 100 quid? Well, uh, economist expression, there isn't such a thing as a free lunch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can stick it in a savings account and get a relatively low rate of interest. You, you stick it in an ISA. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to do something that gives you a reasonable, okay, and reasonably safe return and is moderately socially useful, mm-hmm. then I do recommend the sort of peer-to-peer lending sites. Um, <laughs> these are basically websites that take your money mm. and lend it on to small businesses. I thought they were dodgy. Are yeah. they like? Are they a good thing to be doing then? Is that? I guess they function a bit like an old building society. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you you get a decent return. It's fairly safe because they have people who go and check that the businesses that they're lending to are sound. Of course, some businesses go bust, but that's allowed for in the rate of interest, and you'll get a better return than you would on a normal ISA. So that'll give you a reasonably safe, okay return. Um, if you good. want a, yeah. a higher return and don't mind some risk and are prepared to stick your money in for a while, then you can just put it in, in the stock market. And then I'd recommend just in an index fund where you don't have to make any choices. Yeah. And again, those are reasonably easy to do. But there is no free lunch. There's no return without risk. So I should spend my £100 on lunch. <laughs> <laughs> George Osborne, Philip Hammond, John McDonnell... Snog, marry, kill. Um, <laughs> who, do, who do you think has got the economy right? Who, who, do you think George Osborne got it right and then just got shunted out? Do you think Philip Hammond is steering it correctly? Or do you think John McDonald's got a, a chance of doing something should he get into power? Oh, that's a terrible uh, <laughs> set of choices. You can go back it? to snog, marry, kill if you want. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm afraid you've stumped me on that because there's not... Uh, um, or, you know, if, 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 if I can pick and choose a bit, yeah. I have some sympathy with Hammond's approach on Brexit, mm-hmm. which is a sort of basically damage limitation. How can we minimize the impacts of this on the British economy? That's pretty sensible. I have a lot of sympathy for uh, John McDonnell when going back to austerity and fiscal policy and taxation and so on. I have a lot of sympathy with John McDonnell's yeah. general approach. I think George Osborne, frankly, was a pretty dreadful chancellor and somebody who, not stupid by any means, but when it came down to it, always prioritized his short-term political interests over the interests of the economy as a whole and the country, and I think that's quite difficult to forgive, frankly. Oh, you're not going to get a column in the uh, Evening Standard. (laughs) (laughs) Afraid not. Uh, I think that's everything. Thank you very much for today's expert, Jonathan Porter. (laughs) 
Any Stupid Questions was hosted by me, Danielle Ward. My guests were Gronya Maguire, Tom Neenan and Jonathan Portis from King's College London. It was recorded at the Phoenix in Cavendish Square and produced by Ed Morish for the internet. If you enjoyed our podcast, then subscribing, rating and reviewing it will help other people find it. And you can also tell them about the show with your mouth. We're recording episodes about defence and Brexit on Sunday the 22nd of October. Tickets are available from tickettext.co.uk and you can double up with Inside the Comedian if you want to. You could see my dog. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.